They hired actors to do like a script, like they were actual Kumo employees. Um, and they're sitting in the break room and they're like, well, hey, man, we don't we don't need a union here at Kumo. We need to figure out a way to be able to quickly take advantage of the enthusiasm around unions. So I'm, I'm hoping that labor councils can play um, a larger role in organizing efforts. The organizing that has gone into getting us all here today on the first day of the longest strike on this campus since the stonemasons fought for the eight hour day. <laughs> is a testament to the fact that we don't trust the senior management of this thing that we still call the university. What I'm seeing and hearing with students is that they're pretty clear-eyed about kind of the, the class dynamic here. You're listening to the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. I'm Chris Garlock. On this week's show, Organizing the South and Why It Matters on Solidarity Works, a podcast from the United Steelworkers. Then, from the Valley Labor Report, what labor councils are and why they're important, with Nashville Central Labor Council President Vonda McDaniel. Next, we go to Australia, where the Solidarity Breakfast podcast brings us a voice from the Melbourne Uni strike. And in our final segment today, Save WVU, the Working People podcast talks with students and organizers at West Virginia University, which recently announced plans to dramatically cut academic programs and jobs in the coming year. That's all ahead on this week's edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Here's the show. Welcome to Solidarity Works, a podcast from the United Steelworkers Union. We're here to have conversations and start conversations about the past, present, and future of the labor movement, as well as talk about some of the work the union is doing with USW activists leading the way. Make sure to follow the United Steelworkers Union on Twitter, at Steelworkers, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite streaming service, like Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and more. I'm Chelsea Engel, proud member of the United Steelworkers, and welcome again to Solidarity Works. So I'm Alex Perkins. I'm a staff representative in District 9. I service the, well, I service all over Georgia. I service the Atlanta area, all of middle Georgia, over into um, Alabama. And what were you doing before you became a staff rep? So before I was a staff rep, I was the local union president at a paper mill, graphic packaging paper mill in Macon, Georgia. It's a USW Local 572. That's that's where I got my start. I got a lot of training. I really started most of my training through uh, NextGen. So the NextGen program and the leadership development program of the steelworkers. Super. Um, so you're from Georgia. You worked in Georgia. So you're obviously very familiar with what it's like to be a worker there and 
There are lots of like exciting changes happening in Georgia right now, both with, you know, electoral politics and organizing. Let's go back to 2017. How did the Kumo organizing campaign begin? It all began by a uh, uh, inbox I received on Facebook. I always promote the union on Facebook. So after one of my posts, you know, about um, reaching out and, you know, trying to help people organize, I received an uh, inbox from a guy named Mario Smith. He said that, hey, I was referred to you by someone, you know, about getting a union. And I'm like, well, all right, you know, when when do you want to meet? And he was like, well, can we meet today? And I was like, well, all right, you know, so we, we'll get together. And so I actually told him to come meet me at the bar to just have a discussion about it. He says, hey, some of my coworkers are outside on the patio. So we go outside and it's about 17 uh, Kumo employees sitting outside on the patio. And we had like an unofficial union meeting there and it kicked off the whole drive. Um, I started meeting with them at my home local. I would meet with them in the afternoon and then on my days off, I'll meet with them in the morning. And so it, it just, it took off. It, it caught like a wildfire. But having just a couple of meetings, it was, it was clear that they really wanted a union and, and we had a whole lot of support until the anti-union campaign started. Now they really had an anti-union campaign. Yeah, so can you talk a bit about that as much as you're able about what are some of the, uh, you know, tricks that Humo pulled? Um, because it was, it was a long fight. If there's a trick to be pulled, they pulled it. Uh, they they pulled out all the stops. They went as far as hiring actors. They hired actors to do like a script, like they were actual Kumo employees. Um, and they're sitting in the break room and they're like, well, hey man, we don't we don't need a union here at Kumo. You know, the union's bad. The union's gonna come in and do this and that. We can't talk to the supervisors. And so they had these uh, videos playing on the television screens all day. They got the mayor of Macon to do a video saying that, uh, you know, it, it's it's kind of like if, if you and your wife have an argument, you know, you don't you don't call your in-laws in to come. You don't handle the issues. So you don't need to bring a union in, give the company a chance. They did everything that they could do. But uh, to the tune of, uh, I think, 31 unfair labor practice uh, charges that were, were uh, found by the NLRB. So they... They pulled out all the stops and broke the law while doing so. Yeah, that was actually the next topic I wanted to touch on is, you know, the importance of the NLRB because, you know, the Biden administration was able to get, you know, pro-worker, pro-labor people, uh, pro-labor judges in the NLRB. Um, so can you talk a bit about the importance of the NLRB and organizing? Because I don't think it's something, you know, the average worker or the average person is aware of. I mean, it's it's very critical because the board the board has to look at everything that goes on during these organizing campaigns. Like the uh, the gentleman Mario Smith, the uh, the one that reached out to me, um, the day after the the well the Monday after the first vote, he was terminated. He he was the one that started it all. He was very vocal. The company terminated him. So we filed a board charge um, to try to get his job back. The board found merit in everything that, you know, um, was presented to them. And it helped us because then it, it in turn shows the workers that, okay, this stuff that the company is doing and saying is against the law and that, you know, they're just doing this to try to, you know, coerce you into voting against the union. 
So when when all of that took place, I think that's what opened a lot of people's eyes to the fact that, you know, what we were saying was true and what we were telling them that it was against the law, that we weren't lying to them, but they could clearly see that the companies are lying. I mean, it, it went as far as to the board ruling that Kumo had to allow me to come stand inside the break room while they had town hall meetings to read off all of the charges uh, that were filed and all of the, the ULPs that um, merit were found in against them. So um, the workers are standing there looking at me, standing there with a USW shirt on and the HR managers reading out how they broke the law and that all of the things that they will not do uh, going forward so it, it really helped us and, it, and it, it can help other locations that that plan on organizing as well as long as they're trained you know on what to look for and what to listen out for awesome thank you for tuning in to this episode make sure to follow the usw on social media at steelworkers until next time take care and stay safe siblings to the Valley Labor Report. My name is Adam Keller, and this is Shop Talk. Today on the show, we're talking all about central labor councils. And I'm really excited about this. We have Vonda McDaniel, president of the Nashville Labor Council on this morning. So uh, Vonda, thank you so much for joining the show. Welcome. Hello, Adam. Thank you for inviting me. Before we explain why it's so important, and, and you know, it is so important, Talk to us about what is a labor council? Oh, sure. So um, a labor council is a federation, a federated body of all the unions in the area. Um, And the, the purpose, the goal of labor councils is to move people outside of their trade, uh, narrow trade divisions. Um, into a broader collective um, where we work for social justice. We support contract campaigns. We work on affordable housing here. Um, We are out in the community recruiting um, for um, our apprenticeship programs. Uh, So we have a, a 
apprenticeship readiness program. Um, so there are a variety of roles that central labor councils play, but its most important role is to bring together all union folks um, under an umbrella of solidarity and of work. Yeah. I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit more about, you know, what are some of the activities, for example, that y'all have done in Nashville uh, as a labor council? So our labor council is designed to elevate the um, role in the community of, of unions and the profile. Mm. And we've been working on that for several years. Um, I became the president in 2014, but before that, I was the secretary of the labor council. And so we are very active in local campaigns, mayor, uh, city council, school board. Um, we have a pretty large uh, jurisdiction. It goes all the way to the Alabama line, quite honestly, in that direction. Um, but it also goes to the mountain uh, going toward Chattanooga, the Tennessee River going toward Memphis, and Cookville um, going toward Knoxville. And so sometimes, um, you know, we, we pay a lot of attention to what is happening in Nashville, um, but we are really making an effort trying to build the capacity to have organizers that work in those rural counties as well right. to knit together, uh, uh, you know, more solidarity and understanding among not just union members, but workers particularly. Do you have some ideas of things that you would like to do that you haven't done yet? Or have you run across any cool ideas across the country that other labor councils are trying? Oh, definitely, definitely. So um, we are in a moment where I think 80% of young people that had the opportunity on the poll came out, they would join a union. And that's great news, but mm. we need to figure out a way to be able to quickly take advantage of the enthusiasm around unions. Right. And so I'm, I'm hoping that labor councils can play um, a larger role um, in organizing efforts, at least the, the basic seeding of organizing campaigns and support. Um, often international unions they don't have the capacity, quite frankly, to everywhere they want a union to send, you know, a, a organizer two or three to help them establish their committees and, and do that. But right. the labor councils have local relationships that can help to support workers in their efforts to join together to form a union. And so I think that that is a role that um, traditionally maybe labor councils have only played a role at the end of the campaign when they're trying to bring it home. Um, but I, I do think, and we are seeing uh, across the country that labor councils and even state federations are um, equipped to really support and add value to overall organizing efforts. And this is a moment we cannot let this window close. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think 
it is exciting and it's it's a good problem to have when we have more interest than capacity right now. Well, Vonda, thank you so much for your time this morning. Really appreciate it and keep up the good work in Nashville. Thank you, Adam. All right, folks. So that was Vonda McDaniel with Nashville Labor Council. Uh, again, I can't emphasize enough, join your labor council. Uh, if your union's not part of a labor council yet, bring that up at the next meeting. Solidarity, y'all. You're listening to Radical Radio on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial, 3CR digital, and podcasting and streaming on 3cr.org.au. We're coming to the end of uh, Solidarity Breakfast for another Saturday, but uh, before we do, we can't uh, go without doffing our hat to the remarkable strikers at uh, Melbourne University. They've been out for uh, some, are still out for seven days. Uh, Different parts of the university went out for different lengths of time. Uh, As uh, David Gonzalez, the president of the NTU branch, said in a rather sophisticated way that uh, each area was given a chance to consider how far they felt safe to go. Uh, Before we leave this morning, uh, we'll hear one of the voices from the rally that they had on the Monday. Uh, This is Abigail. She's a casual academic at at Melbourne University, and this is her view on why it was important to strike. My name is Abigail, and I've been a fixed-term tutor in the Faculty of Arts for about two years now. I'm also a PhD candidate, and I did my undergraduate degree here as well. I want to say something briefly about why I am striking this week and perhaps why some of you are striking too. To be a graduate researcher is to get pretty used to hearing that you have no future in in academia. For many of us, the future that isn't a future looks like vying for casual or fixed-term contracts here and elsewhere, possibly working across multiple universities. Aside from offering no financial or emotional stability for us and our families, the workload allocation of these contracts will make it almost impossible for most people, especially those with the demographic indicators you might imagine, to do the research required to be competitive for the few ongoing jobs that do exist. Then again, given the trajectory of the higher education sector here in Australia and around the world, we might ask what it would even mean to say, I work at the university in 20 or 30 years' time. Many of us continue with our work, knowing that there is no future, but wanting to stay as long as we can in spaces where we can read and write and think and teach. We continue with our work and try for a while to ignore the fact that this university is being run as a business, with little regard for any of those pursuits, that the essence of the thing that we're trying to hold on to has been hollowed out and set on fire. In some cases, we stick around long enough to see the people whose presence made the decision to stay seem meaningful in the first place, burn out, be discarded, take jobs outside the sector, or lose the time and capacity to do the work that we need them to do. We all know that there are more PhD students than there are potential jobs in academia. That's not what I want to talk about today. Personally, my plan has always been to be a high school teacher, and other people I know have other plans. What concerns me is this. Most of the jobs that do exist in this sector are not good jobs or fair jobs, 
or jobs which are conducive to actual thinking, learning or teaching, and we are expected not to care, to complain about things at the pub, perhaps, but not to change our workplace for the better. If we stick around at all, it seems that we're supposed to do so quietly for as long as we are convenient, tutor for two or 10 or 20 years without sick leave or parental leave, attempt to publish quality research with no time allocated in our workloads to do so, and finally, in many cases, to disappear. In other words, it seems we're expected to accept things the way they are out of a sense of loyalty, perhaps, to the people who make decisions about where to put new buildings or how to appear to securitize our workforce without compromising their profits. Maybe they hope that everyone will blame their own personal inadequacy or turn on one another. But management have miscalculated. We can see that the system is broken and we do care. I, I come to the end of my seventh year at this university with a sense of loyalty not to the chancellor, vice chancellor or any of its senior executives, or their consultants, but rather to the tutors, lecturers, supervisors, librarians, school operation coordinators, and other professional staff members who I have known and whose labor has been inextricable from my learning, teaching, and research. The majority of these people have been and continue to be systematically overworked and underpaid for the amount of work they do. The majority are insecurely employed and can't be sure they'll still have jobs at the end of this semester or in a year's time. Many of you are here today, as are many students, recognizing the inextricability of your own positions from the working conditions at this university. I'm going on strike because regardless of whether I see a future working in higher education, I feel very strongly that I don't exist in a vacuum as much as certain powers would like me to believe that this is the case. The organizing that has gone into getting us all here today on the first day of the longest strike on this campus since the stonemasons fought for the eight-hour day <laughs> is a testament to the fact that we don't trust the senior management of this thing that we still call the university. We trust each other and we are strong together. We have organized from the ground up, locally and through hundreds if not thousands of one-on-one -on -one conversations, emails, phone calls, coffees and meetings. I have spoken with and organized with people who have been on casual contracts, contracts for decades in the same or similar roles and who have been unable to take out loans, plan their future or see beyond the months or even weeks ahead of them. I have spoken with and organized with people who had tens of thousands of dollars stolen from them at the time when they needed it most and only received some part of that money back as a result of the efforts of casual employees and union members at this university whose work on the $45 million wage theft campaign has had ripple on effects across the country. I have, I have spoken with and organized with people who feel that they can't be the teachers they want to be or do the work that is required of them because they can't concentrate or think or sleep at night under the various and intersecting pressures of their jobs. Pressures which have crept up over the course of decades and which so, show no sign of naturally abating. As a friend of mine said recently, we can all predict the way things will pan out if we don't strike. In coming together today on the first day of this unprecedented week-long strike, a strike we can vote to extend for days or even weeks if we have to, we are introducing an element of uncertainty. Maybe for a little while we can stop things from getting worse. Thank you.
My name is Leslie Wilbur. I graduated from WVU's um, MFA program in creative writing last May, May 2023. And while I was at West Virginia University, uh, I was also a member of an organizer with uh, West Virginia Campus Workers. Hi, my name is Morgan King, and I'm a recent alum from WBU. I graduated a few years back with a Bachelor's of Civil Engineering um, and a minor in Political Science. And um, since then, I've been fortunate to uh, be a Fulbright Scholar in Spain and a Marshall Scholar in the United Kingdom. Hi, my name is Jesse Wilkerson, and I am a professor at West Virginia University in the History Department, and I've been here since 2020. I'm also a member of the West Virginia Campus Workers Union. All right. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Working People, a podcast about the lives, jobs, dreams, and struggles of the working class today. Brought to you in partnership with In These Times Magazine and The Real News Network. My name is Maximilian Alvarez, and uh, we've got a very urgent episode for y'all today. As you heard, uh, we are honored and grateful to have Leslie, Morgan, and Jesse on the call today, uh, all currently or formerly affiliated with West Virginia University, uh, which you have all no doubt seen has been in the news this past week, and it is not good news. Um, you know, in fact, it's incredibly devastating and horrifying news. And we've had a lot of folks asking us about it, if we could um, do an episode on it and hear from folks uh, working on campus um, about what is going on at WVU with these massive proposed uh, cuts to programs. Um, and, you know, frankly, it, it feels like a, a lot of the university and campus community and the higher ed community across the country is in shock right now. Um, and so we wanted to get Leslie, Morgan, and Jesse on, and I'm incredibly grateful to them for making time to do this, especially with everything else that they are dealing with right now. I want to communicate to people um, that what we are talking about here with WVU uh, in Morgantown, you know, what this institution means as a site of work, as a place of work where upon which so many people's livelihoods depend. I would say that one of the things I find well, there's a few things, but one of the things that I find particularly heartbreaking about the timing of this is when I think about my own experience, again, as a graduate worker um, in a three-year program, announcing this last Friday, the week before classes start. Um, there are, you know, I think about the people who are coming into my program, the MFA program, coming into other programs. You know, in the MFA program in particular, um, you have people who are coming here with the expectation of not only being able to like incubate their their creative works for three years and have the time to like, develop as emerging artists, but also thinking that you're going to have a job that will pay not very much, but at least <laughs> some of your bills, um, even if it's paying quite poorly um, for the next three years. So you think you have this plan for the next three years um, and then, you know, getting here and, and having the rug pulled out from under you. And I know um, as far as I've heard that 
in the English department, uh, graduate worker stipends have not been decreased, but in other departments, um, graduate workers have been forced essentially into um, decreased stipends in order to continue their studies. So people who are partway through a program are being asked to sign new contracts. Um, and I would, um, I would really emphasize the fact, and, and not to go on about this too much, um, but I would really emphasize the fact that most of the graduate workers at West Virginia University are wildly undercompensated for their work. Again, um, in the English department, um, most of us teaching to um, two sections per semester in the MFA program, um, folks are making a stipend of 16,750. PhD students make a little more, the MA students make a little less. Can I just jump in real quick? Um, because I wanna uh, add another another piece to what Leslie was talking about. I mean, because Leslie has laid out what life looks like, like for grad workers whose stipends are very low and they have stagnated. Um, and, and are lower than uh, many of our peer institutions. And, um, and then, you know, we also have um, teaching assistant faculty who are um, on usually yearly or maybe a few years um, of a contract. They're not tenured, they're, they're contingent faculty who also are making, you know, usually around, I think $50,000 a year. Um, and then, of course, we talked about staff making you know, 14, 15, 16 dollars an hour. Um, and I just want to contrast that with what's been happening at the upper levels um, over the last decade. Um, the salaries of administrators have grown and the number of administrators um, you know, those, those offices have expanded and, and those are people who on the lower end, I think are making around $300,000. And then you have the president of the university who's making $800,000 and is getting, um, retention bonuses, um, every, I don't think it's every year, but maybe every few years. And so I think that that's, uh, and I would be curious to hear Morgan talk a little bit about that as well, because I've seen uh, on social media a lot of students pointing out the class politics of all of this. And and I think that um, we keep hearing about enrollment declines and we keep hearing about um, the pandemic funding is drying up and um, it's been suggested that faculty uh, are no longer valued by the people of West Virginia. And so it's kind of our fault that people don't really care about these programs anymore. And then meanwhile, you have these administrators who make a lot of money who also um, made decisions about the budget and who've left us with a massive deficit. And I think you pointed that out, Max, when you or you you read the part about the deficit in the Washington Post piece. So WVU was on track to expand and spending a lot of money to expand. And then suddenly in, I think, you know, it was February, I think that we start hearing about 
oh no, we, we have this projected deficit and we have to start layoffs like kind of immediately. Um, so, you know, I think we hear all of these other reasons for what's going on, but what I'm seeing and hearing with students is that they're pretty clear eyed about kind of the, the class dynamic here. We have a little short link you can go to called uh, tinyurl.com slash save WVU. I don't think this is dis this is distinctly about West Virginia. This is something that's happening at a lot of places already. And if it hasn't, it's probably going to happen soon. That'll do it for this week's edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. It's just a small sample of the programs aired over the last week or so on more than 200 Labor Radio and Podcast shows. They're all part of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, shows that focus on working people's issues and concerns. We've got links to all the network shows at laborradionetwork.org, and you can also find them by using the hashtag Labor Radio Pod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, edited this week by Patrick Dixon. I produce the show, and our social media guru is Mr. Harold Phillips. For the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this is Chris Garlock urging you to stay active and, of course, stay tuned to your local Labor Radio Podcast show. Thank you.